Well, good morning. I'm so glad that we have the chance to gather together to worship the Lord together. Um, I was raised spiritually, that's speaking, in the Navigators in college. And there was a lot of emphasis on studying God's word and my personal commitment to God in my own quiet time. And while all that was true, but the joy of actually worshiping together, God has opened my eyes to what it means to worship with the church. So we are going to continue today in our series in Genesis. Uh, I'm so thankful for our brother Jonathan and Kaiki who plowed us through Genesis 14. Just the story of the battle and this appearing of this king priest, Melchizedek, and how does that relate to us and how should our life be any different as a result of that? So today we are going to continue on into Genesis chapter 15. Our main idea this morning is a simple title of grace, faith, and righteousness. So if you would please turn with me in your Bible, whether electronic or paper, to Romans chapter 15. Uh, yes, actually you heard me correctly. Romans chapter 15. Let me read verses 1 through 3 and verse 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Yeah, okay, I see the look. I see the look. Hang with me. Paul here is exalting, exhorting us not to live a life that pleases ourselves, but to look towards others, to build them up. And then he goes on to say, and at the end, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now, if you read that, verses 1 through 3 and verse 7, it flows very nicely, doesn't it? It makes total sense. But right in the middle, the passage that we did not read, for whatever was written in former days, so all of a sudden now Paul is taking and breaking that segment apart and saying, don't please yourselves, please other people, but whatever was written for our instruction in former days that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ is welcome. That is my prayer this morning, that as, as we gather together and we are exalted not to, exhorted not to live for ourselves, but then he takes us back into scripture. And I pray that as we go through probably a very familiar passage, that we would come out the other end with one voice, that we would glorify the Lord. 
We are going to celebrate communion today. So as we come out of this, my prayer is that we would exalt God together and not simply individuals. So before we go forward, I, I feel the need uh, to pray and depend upon him. So if you would, thank you, Lord, for your word, Father, that gives us hope and encouragement and endurance. Father, we are needy. We are unable to clearly understand even the simplest of passage apart from your spirit and your leading. Speak to us afresh. Open our eyes, my eyes, to the wondrous God that you are. You are holy. We love your righteousness. Fill us, Father, right now with joy and unity and harmony and love for you as we study your word. So now, if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 15. Now, as you remember, just a, a quick step back in Genesis 12, it's called the calling of Abraham. God clearly lays out the calling to leave where he is and to go to the new land. And he says, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse you. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. And then we see Abraham leave that land, go to Egypt and compromise Sarah. We see him come back in Genesis 13. We see him and Lot separate. And Abraham is a man of integrity in the way that he treats. And then we saw in Genesis 14 the battle of the four kings versus the five kings. Abraham intervening for Lot, as well as the blessing of our, this king priest, Melchizedek. And then we enter into Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so your offspring shall be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I got to tell you, this is, this is like ending, having this great dinner with the steak and whatever you want to envision and you only get to eat half of it. The rest of this chapter is just flows into the, the glorious covenant that God makes. But we're going to stop here. But yet, we must remember that it's part of a larger narrative of what God is doing. As I was reading this, and my wife challenged me as I was struggling through the scriptures truly, because I, I don't know about you, but I find that sometimes familiarity can bring complacency. Sometimes it brings hope. Sometimes it can bring complacency. 
And as I was studying through this, I'm like, I, I, uh, I've read this. I, and she asked me, so, so uh, yeah, but what did you get out of it when you read it? This is a thought. I was struck, and we're going to go through this now, of the grace that God shows to Abraham through this time. There are seven ways that God demonstrates his grace. First, God shows his grace by initiating. The word of the Lord came to Abraham. Didn't have to. Gave him enough information in 12. God is always previous. Aren't you glad God doesn't wait for us to get it right? He is always previous. We don't have to be in the right frame of mind. Not only that, his first words after initiating to him are, fear not. Now, I was kind of hoping because Kaiki kind of dabbled into it last week. I was really kind of hoping that he was going to define theologically in a deep PhD terminology what Abraham was not to fear. Not only did he not do that, kind of left us hanging. We aren't really told what Abraham is not supposed to fear. But I, I give you a couple of things that came to my mind. First off, I mean, remember, he just came off this battle in which he says, I don't want anything from you. I mean, he kind of told the king of Sodom just to step back and I don't want to have anything to do with you. So potentially, realistically, it could be that Abraham was fearing maybe some revenge coming his way. He only had 318 warriors and four kings coming at him again. Or this is the almighty God, the creator and maker of heaven and earth, the one who does as he pleases, is now speaking to Abraham. The fear, the shudder, I mean, we see this all through scripture, that people just cower when God speaks, but yet the first words are fear not. So maybe it's just a matter of, I'm speaking to you, but don't be afraid. We often see as well in some spiritual highs that people go through. Elijah had this problem. After they go through highs, they go through a lot of fear. Elijah go hides in a cave. And so, but regardless, fear not. We see this again in verse 21. We see it when he's, God speaks this to Isaac and he speaks it to Jacob again. And we see this in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, fear not. Aren't you more value than sparrows? Mark chapter 5, with the healing of Jairus' daughter, when everybody else was making fun of him, he's not dead. He goes, do not be afraid. Believe. Luke 12, fear not. The Father's desire is to give you the kingdom. What grace that God would reach down, not only to talk to Abraham, but to comfort him in the midst of it. That's the same God that we worship. It's the same God that lives in us. God shows his grace by revealing himself. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
Now, we could stop here and, and go off into the system of noise of all the Hebrew different definitions of what all this meant. The definition of a shield, is this a pronoun, is this an act? It, it just, there's a lot of churn in the system. If you ever go off and read that, I warn you, don't do that. I'm going to take the easy way out. The NIV says, I am your shield, your very great reward. ESV says, as we just read, your reward shall be very great. If you read another translation, there's an I in front of that. I, your reward, will be very great. Regardless of how you get there. This is the first time that God is revealing who he is to Abram. Previously, what did he say to Abraham? The Lord said, go. Who is this Lord? Well, I am your shield. I am your protector. Some people translate that your benefactor. I am your reward. And your reward will be very great. God's grace by revealing himself. God shows his grace by hearing Abraham. But Abraham said, now, a couple of commentaries kind of go, well, we're not really sure where that word but fits. Meaning, is that Moses interjecting that word? Or did Abram have the audacity to say, but God? Regardless, but Abraham said, oh Lord, will you, what will you give me for I continue childless in the heir of my house as Eleazar Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abraham is complaining that he doesn't have a child. So I am by nature, okay, sinful nature, one that criticizes and critiques a lot of people. I'm great, glad that God is working on me. So I'm looking at this the first time I read this as, what a whiner. I mean, really? What have you done? I mean, look at all the things that you've done up to this point, and you're going to give me all this land, and I don't have any children. I just can't see how this is going to work. I think as I studied it, though, I can't get away that there might be an element of that. But I think there's some real earnestness cry out in Abraham's heart. He's been given this promise. You are the greatest reward one could ever have. You've told me I'm going to have a great nation that's going to bring salvation and bless the earth. I don't have any children. Really? How is this going to work? Not only do I not have any children, I don't have an heir. And the heir right now looks like it's going to be this guy who manages my household. I think underneath there, there's this interesting thought that the heart of Abraham is that you are the giver of great reward. I don't really care what you could give me, God. Just give me a child. We've kind of done that, right? In our sinful flesh. I, I, don't, I don't care if you give me anything else. I just want that. 
We tell our children, I'm sorry, you're not going to have that. Okay, well, I'm just going to pout or whatever. But God continues to show his grace. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Some of the translations actually show it came back to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. This is very similar to the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring from your own body. Notice that God did not rebuke him, shut him down. He's so patient and kind. God simply tells Abraham the promise again, and he provides just, just enough clarity to encourage him. And then he brought him outside, said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them, then so shall your offspring. I see Abraham as his gentle father. After he tells him, he goes, Abraham, Abraham, come with me. Come on outside. Look up. Look up. What do you see? Isn't it the way that God is with us? We sometimes need to be reminded of the things that God has done and will do. This is why we need his spirit. This is why we need his word to be reminded of what God is and will do. Just even something as simple as the other day, I had a day that I, at the end of the day, I look and I go, that was a very unproductive day. I mean, really, 11 hours of, I tell that to my wife, and I get this look. And we we kind of know that. And she goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me, let me help you out. And she lists off all the things that I did. I needed a reminder, not, not to puff myself up, but here, God, wait, 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 come outside. I've already told you that you're going to have descendants that are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Look up. Numerics are a way that God seems to somehow show his grandeur and open our eyes to his promises. Now, I read somewhere that at that particular time in the Mesopotamian sky, there were 8,000 stars visible to the eyes. Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure where that came from. Okay, or who tracked that? But I didn't know where the commentaries went, but I'm like, really? So this is about look up and see what you can see, and we're going to give you 8,927 offspring. No, this is, this is the vastness and the grandeur of God speaking to Abraham. I am going to do so much that you have no idea. 
So I have to check, as I was reading this, I kind of go, so, okay, you ever wonder why God didn't just, right, at this moment, just go, okay, look at the stars, and, oh, by the way, Sarah's going to have a child tomorrow. If you look in your Bible and you study it, it's 13 more years until Isaiah, I, Isaac comes along. It's even longer until Isaiah comes along, but we'll just do that. <laughs> Romans 4, 19 and 20 give us a little bit of insight. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when his when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God. God waited. Well, God's timing is perfect, but the reason that we see in Scripture is that Abraham's faith would increase, and God would get the glory. Abraham's faith would grow we see this also in John, chapter 11. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Okay. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Later, he, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? God, in his grace, often withholds the timing, withholds it according to our schedule, his timing in his promise. So now we get to verse 6. Have you ever gone to the fireworks on July 4th and you've seen as they shoot off the one firework and it, you kind of see the stream of light going up and up and up and then it goes dark and then boom! To me that's kind of what verse 6 is. But I got to tell you, I, I'm not really sure why verse 6 is here. I mean, we, we look at it, if you look at the context and in going into verse 7, God continues the dialogue. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the child of the All of a sudden, Moses, for some reason, of the inspiration of God, sticks this very simple yet transformative sentence. It is what our Reformed faith hinges on, by grace alone through faith alone. And Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. What's really interesting is I had a lot of details of what I was going to say about that, and I don't know where that page went to. What we see, though, 
is what does this mean that Abraham believed God? Did he just believe facts about him? Did he just believe... Hold on just a second. I apologize. I'm missing a page. There it is. Abraham believed the Lord. He put faith. He trusted. Actually, the translation is, Amen, Lord. I thought that was kind of neat. Amen, Lord. He believed this promise despite seeing the result of it or knowing the how and the why. How is this going to work out? I don't have a child. The heir that I have is the manager of my household, and you've told me this is going to happen. I cannot connect A to Z. But simple faith, Abraham believed. I, why is this so difficult for me? Why is this so difficult for us to believe? Why is it so difficult to have simple, not needing the last word, faith? My dialogue would go something like this. Let me get this straight, Lord. I'm going to have a great nation and a people as countless as the sand, dust, and stars, but I do not have an heir, and I'm childless. Do I understand this? I hope you're sure about that. Okay, all right. Well, it's a good start. I'm, I'm, I'm going to trust you. I don't know. Abraham's, there's no more further description that we're given here. Abraham believed. It's simple, but not easy. Submission and surrender. Romans 4.20, like we read before, says, He did not waver in unbelief. doesn't go there, doesn't end there. And he believed the Lord and it counted it to him as righteousness. Counted, credited. Second Samuel 19 says, let the Lord not hold me guilty. Psalm 32, blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This idea of counting it, it's, it's not an addition. It's not a mathematical term. It's not like I'm going to increase, which is sometimes, truthfully, the way that I view it, like what I kind of feel like I'm 3% righteous. Could you just float me the other 97? It's not a sum. It's not a gathering of all the other things and righteous behavior that, and it's not inequality. Faith does not necessarily equal righteousness. So what is this righteousness? A state of rightness before God, a right relationship with God. Sins forgiven, the only way to be right. Now there is, at this point, I have to tell you, most people, we're going to jump off here and we're going to dive into the doctrine of justification. I personally have dispensation from Timothy to go for another two and a half hours. So, 
but I, I had to ask myself, I mean, that may be true, but let's remember who the audience is. This isn't the church in the year 2023. This is written to Jews. Why did Moses put it here? And he goes on, and the covenant's coming next. I'm going to let that dangle for a little bit. What did Abraham really need in all of this? Question I had to ask. He needed righteousness. He was not right with God. Yet the Jews look at him like he is the father of their faith, which he is. But he's not perfect. He's not their salvation. At the end of his life, if, he, if God uses him, but he doesn't himself have righteousness. What do we need? We need righteousness. Oh, Lord God, we love your righteousness. All of us have sinned and fall short, miserably short of the glory of God. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. We are blinded by the God of this age. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need God's righteousness. So again, back though, staying within the context of this passage with Abraham, how was Abraham made righteous? Or in what was he justified? The word to say, to be made right. He was not justified by any works. Now, let's get this straight. Abraham did a lot of good works. If you look back at them, he left his land. He was a man of integrity, Lot. He rescued Lot. He built altars and called upon the Lord. But yet none of those were highlighted in this. And the Lord in Scripture is not hesitant to highlight when people do things. Five out of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, God starts out, I know your faith, I know your tribulation. Abraham was not justified by the law. The law didn't exist. That glorious act of circumcision doesn't occur for a couple chapters. The sacrificial system isn't in place. We, because of God, has given us his word in the New Testament that Romans 3 goes on to say that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So we have some insight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Philippians 3.9 says, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteous God. My point there is Abraham wasn't justified by the law. We are not justified by the law. Not only the moral law, but the ceremonial law. 
You know, it just, I think it was Spurgeon that challenged, he wrote some things that were pretty straightforward. He said, you know, baptism is good. It does not save. Communion is good. It does not save. Studying God's word even is good. It is through God's word that we receive faith, the message of Christ. But the very act of just sitting down and opening my Bible at 6 a.m. in the morning does not save. Being here, being faithfully here, attending a lot of times here does not save. It is by faith through what Christ has done that we are saved. Abraham was not justified, the third thing, by perfect faith. We see that in Genesis 12. We see it in Genesis 16 when he takes the whole process into land with Hagar. And then even after Isaac is born, he does the same thing to Sarah again. So how was Abraham justified? I've said this before. He believed. John 6, 28 and 29. The disciples come to Jesus and say, what is it then that the work of God that we must do? Jesus responds, the work of God is this, is to believe in the one whom he sent. John chapter 20, verse 31. John writes a summary of all. I write these things that you might believe and have life. God's grace coupled with faith. Now, a couple of warnings. I'd like to say that they are for you, but they were more for me. Do not confuse faith with faithfulness. We are called to be faithful. Faithful is a good thing. The rich young ruler was faithful. But when it came time, he did not have faith. Do not confuse faith with academics or knowledge. God did not demand that Abraham know about Propitiation, justification, sanctification, eschatology, and a lot of other Asians that I can't even define. There was no need for that. And finally, do not confuse perfect faith with being perfectly justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Our faith is not perfect. Abraham's faith was not perfect. But we are perfectly and completely, wondrously justified before a holy God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now the really good news. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Turn with 
23, verse 23 through 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It will be counted to us also who believe in the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, he paid for our trespasses, and he died, conquered sin and death, and we are justified. That is the good news. That is the joyous news. I have to go back to this thought of familiarity to me brings complacency. Transparency in church that while whether or not I'm doing a good job, I can explain this. I know where the scripture passages are about being justified right before a holy God. But do I live like it? Does the joy, the freedom that that brings, that I am righteous before God, not because of anything I did, I can cease all this striving that I go through all this fretting. Am I working hard enough? Am I praying hard enough? Did I come to church right? Do people like the way that I teach? Do all these things. That is such bondage. We believers, if you believe in what Jesus Christ has done, it says you are right with God. Praise him. Encourage one another as we go back to the verse we started with, Romans 15, that we would with one voice glorify his name because of Christ. I'm also reminded of the passage in Galatians, one of my favorite. So as I start turning my mind towards the gospel, I realize I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And I now, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So am I living by faith every day in this flesh? And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I love to stop there. But he goes on and says, I do not nullify the grace of God, which we've been talking about beforehand. Because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing, for no purpose. But we know that's not true. We know that Christ died for a purpose. He died to forgive us of our sins to give us hope and a future and to make us right with God. Church, how are we living? 
We need his help to live that way. So there's only a couple other questions that need to be asked here. Do you believe in God? Not about him. Not the facts. But do you believe in God in the way that Abraham did? Simple, yet surrendered faith. Have you taken the step of faith to trust and believe that God paid the price and you are justified through the works of Christ alone? Or are you depending upon some religious activity? God asks nothing. Amazing. God asks nothing of you other than faith to believe what he's already done. What, what can we add? What is deficient in God's plan? What is lacking? Did he forget something? Oh, by the way, Mark, you know, I, I need you to do these things. And if you would just do enough of them, I kind of left that out. Am I living like I have something that I need to obtain his favor? I would think that in a church this size, that there are some of us, if we asked we were justified, we would resoundingly raise our hands and say yes. We probably could even say some of the verses that we've gone through ourselves. But yet, we have not experienced the joy of being justified before God. We prayed to that end that we would. I also got to think that in a church this size, there are probably some that have not made a commitment of faith. I implore you on Christ's loving behalf. Scripture tells us today is the day. Do not harden your hearts. Respond to him. He's reaching. Come. And for those of us who have put our faith, for those of us who have and maybe need to be reminded of our right standing, let us glorify the Lord in harmony with one voice. We are now going to turn and have a time in communion where we can not only remember but proclaim the death of Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your glorious grace. Undeserving, always previous. There is not a whole lot else we can say we're blown away by it. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for paying the price that we could not pay. And thank you for revealing it in your word. We need you desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we come to the time of communion. Here at Ventura, we practice open communion. That means if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and made 
him, your rock and your salvation, we welcome you to the table to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ as represented in this bread and wine. If you, we also add our repenting believer, if you have clear sin in your life, we see the command in scripture to leave your gift at the altar and, and go and get these things right as a call before you take communion to be in a place of repentance of any known sin that's in your life. And that is not to make you worthy, but to remind us of why we're taking this. Jesus died to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us a people pure. Let us remember John's command, those that confess their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we're taking, let us also practice what that means for us as believers and repentance and turning from sin. And as I come here this morning, I, um, there's been this repetitive thought in my mind this weekend especially. There is still much, Jonathan, there's still much of Christ to be learned. And we do this once a month over and over and over again. And I think the call to us as believers every time we take this is remember there is still much of Christ to be known, to be experienced. Don't begin to think. That's it. I got it. But put before our eyes today the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for us that I'm going to say a prayer and call the musicians up and then we will pass and the elders uh, come to pass the, the elements. Father, we are reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ gave thanks and we would give thanks to you, the giver of every good gift in this, the most great, glorious, and magnificent of all your gifts even your own son given to die for us. How can we give sufficient thanks? How can we praise you enough for this glorious gift of our Lord Jesus Christ? Help us all as we take this communion to remember him and remember what he has done. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything that is good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.